0: This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. The late Dr Ranginui Walker was one of the eminent Māori authors and thinkers of the 20th and 21st centuries. He wrote often about the struggles for Māori land rights and cultural identity And in the words of Professor Paul Spoonley, he had no reservations about confronting Pākehā New Zealanders about their lack of understanding and prejudices towards Māori. The context is really important for this interview. It's from 2004, and it's shortly after the Labour-led government passed the Foreshore and Seabed Act, which ramped up tensions between the Crown and Māori. Kim found this quite a challenging interview. She said... You know, sometimes you have to ask obvious questions in interviews because the audience wants to know the answers. But when you ask those questions about uh, issues like race relations in Aotearoa, you can come off as insensitive or stupid or racist. That said, Dr. Walker is thoughtful and generous, and it might be a little jarring to listen to this interview in 2023, given how much the country and the way that we talk about these things has changed but it's still a really interesting snapshot of Aotearoa at a landmark moment in our history.
1: <clears throat> it's half past eight in 1990. Emeritus Professor Dr Ranginui Walker wrote a book called Ka Fafai Tonumato, Struggle Without End. A history of Aotearoa from a Māori perspective. It did what he spent his life doing, challenging monoculturalism either through his teaching, his writing, his activity on the Auckland District Māori Council, a myriad of other things, columns and writings. He lectured at the University of Auckland. He became the head of Māori Studies and the university's first pro-Vice-Chancellor Māori and retired from there in 1998. Well, not retired from much else. A member of the Waitangi Tribunal, author of a biography of Sir Apirana Ngata. And now he's updated... And he joins me now. Kia ora.
2: Kia ora to you, Kim.
1: I see, <laughs> I see on the back of the book, um, and I, I guess that this is the publisher has done this, it says, The struggle without end continues. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of depressing, really. There is no light at the end of the tunnel then. No, no, there's lots of light. <coughs> Pardon me, there's lots of light at the end of the tunnel.
2: I'm, I'm very optimistic about uh, the transformations that have occurred uh, in the last uh, 15 or so years. Uh, I think uh, the treaty discourse has created a, a much leveller playing field for Māori, uh, but then the foreshore and seabed is a kind of a setback, you know, kind of a regression back to the colonial mindset.
1: You do seem strange. I, know. I read your response to Don Brash's Orewa speech. Yep. Um, in which uh, uh, you say his drift, alleged drift, towards racial separatism is nonsense. Of course it is. Uh, There's a high degree of
2: coming together, uh, Māori and Pākehā, which dates back to the urban migration uh, in the late 1950s through to the 70s, where you have uh, 70, 75% of Māori people now living in towns and cities and becoming uh, part of the political economy. Uh, there's a um you know there's a coming together in churches in sport uh, intermarriage um the I've browning
1: bre- of new zealand you call it uh,
2: absolutely mm. um,
1: but uh, in in criticizing dr Brush, dr Brush. Dr. Bush, strange <laughs> Freudian slip. Dr. Brash, you seem to see a rosier picture than you you normally have. You know, yeah, you've yeah. you've got the tribunal seeking truth and reconciliation between Maori and Pakeha, and the transformative effect on the education system of the treaty.
2: Well, the, the one of that's one of the most depressing things. That the good work the tribunal. Uh, does, uh, often gets uh, slated in Parliament um, and uh, there's a lot of of, uh, misinformation out there. I don't think the tribunal is getting the publicity it deserves because what it does is um, it brings the subjugated knowledge and discourses out into the open. It puts that into the national record uh, and the tribunal actually sits on the marae of complainants, and it's like them having their day in the court. It's uh, the, the crown fronting up to them and hearing and listening. Uh, and at the end of it, when there is a settlement, there is a crown apology. Uh, but for the people, it's it's a kind of brings a sense of closure. And... Uh, the settlement, of course, uh, provides them with a package to uh, establish a corporation and, as I said, become part of the political economy. Uh, one of the greatest successes, of course, is uh, the Naitahu Corporation. Uh, the Tainui one is now back on track. I think, understand, last million they were in, uh, last year they were in profit by about fifteen million.
1: So, just putting the foreshore and seabed legislation aside for a moment, why is it a struggle without end? You know, why can't you imagine a time where we will live in harmony with one another? uh,
2: Well, uh, you you mustn't put it in that depressing way. Uh,
1: But it it does, do you understand, to a Pākehā, it does seem depressing. To Māori, I suspect, correct me if I'm wrong, part of the identity is, in fact, struggle for your identity
2: Uh, well the, the the identity thing has been one Kim we're witnessing the most powerful comeback of an indigenous culture from the trauma of the colonial experience and maori are actually leading the world in that that comeback Uh, um, other indigenous people are looking towards maori for such things as language recovery recovery establishment of kura kaupapa kohanga establishment of wananga engaging in the tertiary education and maori are reaching out there uh, into uh, those people and helping and and they're cooperating uh, and, and we this is something that we should celebrate um but coming back to that uh, depressing <laughs> <laughs> that depressing point um it's got nothing little to do with maori pakeha but everything to do with power with government that's where the problem is. I mean, all, Pākehā now, uh, many of them have seen the injustice of the foreshore sea, seabed legislation and have sided with Māori on that. Um, and it's, it's about power, and all people at one stage or another are oppressed by
1: power. Let's talk about the foreshore and seabed legislation then. What do you think should have happened. Because the reason the legislation has gone through is because we have a democracy with all its flaws, we have a democracy in this country. The ba-
2: major flaw of democracy, Kim, is tyranny of the majority. That was identified by de Tocqueville in the previous century.
1: Yeah. So what are you going to do, ditch ditch democracy?
2: No, uh, it's, it's an imperfect... Um, ideology, but it's the best we have, and we have to uh, uh, work hard uh, to make it uh, function.
1: All right, and as I understand it then, the way it functioned was that the Labour government could not tolerate the perception, which was probably not what was going to happen, but the perception by the majority, the Pākehā, that Maori could get some kind of exclusivity to areas of Foreshore and Seabed. Consequently, they had to pass yeah. legislation to make people look as if they were stopping something that may never happen. Yeah. Right? That's right. OK. So that's democracy. But in the end, even though the perception is that it's confiscation, it may not be a confiscation at all because Maury can still go to the court and claim that they have some kind of customary right over areas of Foreshore and Seabed. Um. Is that not right? No,
2: that's not right. Um, If you were to look around the coastline of New Zealand, where you see development, those areas are owned by Pākehā. Where you see there's no development, the chances are it's owned by Māori. If you go, to say, to Coromandel, and and over the hill from Coromandel, there's a beautiful little bay that's virtually in a natural state, um, and that's Kennedy's Bay, that's owned by Amari Iwi. Mm. And thank goodness that it's still in its natural state. It hasn't been ruined by development. You go from Opotiki right round to Gisborne, the same there. That land belongs to Ngāti Pro and they are negotiating with the Crown to assert their mana uh, as guaranteed under the Treaty over that land. Now, if Pākehā go there, uh, they will go there respecting the ownership of that tribe. There there, there are very few places now around the country where people can set up a tent along the shoreline.
1: And is that you telling me what Māori wanted?
2: No, I'm not saying that's what Māori wanted. I'm pointing out that development is setting up exclusive rights to that shoreline. Is it, though? Well, you may there, think there, it is, there, and it may, there, there it are, may look are,
1: as if it is, but it's not, actually. There it? are
2: plenty of no-go areas around the coast, um, Kim, that you know, that, that private property, keep out. There's a little island offshore here where I go fishing off this island, and there's a sign there, this is private property, keep mm-hmm.
1: out. You see, one of the interesting things about the origins of the foreshore and seabed legislation is in the Marlborough Sounds... The tribes there appealed because either they believed they were being closed out of marine farming or that they believed that the marine farming was interfering with their customary fishing practices.
2: Uh, they didn't believe they were closed out of marine farming. They were closed All out right. of marine farming. But they wanted you... to partici- participate. And that's a reflection of the imperfection, one of the imperfections. Will you tell
1: me why they wanted to participate in something that they simultaneously said was destroying their customary fishing uh, grounds? Uh,
2: I say, I was about to say that uh, that is one of the imperfections of, of democracy, that in uh, when the government, the Crown, devolves power to local authority to do things at the local level, uh, very few Māori get elected onto local bodies and regional councils. I think at one point uh, it was 4%. Now that means that all the decision-making pertaining to that coastline is made by Pākehā councillors and it affects Māori land. And those people felt that they wanted to get into the business of Uh, making money by running marine farms and they weren't getting licenses. And up in Northland at uh, a place called Whangaruru, the local people there uh, just unilaterally took it into their own hands to establish a marine farm uh, without getting the the normal resource consents under the RMA. Mm -hmm. Um, So you get those kinds of contradictions. People, Māori people want to be part of that political economy but uh, the, the goodies are not being handed out to them. So that's why those people in the top of the South uh, took the matter to court.
1: So you can see no conflict between saying we want our customary fishing grounds to be protected from the ravages of aquaculture at the same time as wanting to be more involved mm. in the profits and commerce of aquaculture
2: um aquaculture doesn't necessarily ravage the coastline
1: i'm not uh, i'm not suggesting that but this is what the confederation of tribes at the top of the south island no no,
2: no no they actually want to participate they want to uh generate income too and work for their people
1: so when they say they were worried about the impact of aquaculture on the customary fishing grounds the customary fishing rights and the sounds yep Did that have any environmental commentary, or was it simply them saying, we want a piece of the action and we're entitled to it? Well,
2: there's two things going on there. One, they wanted a piece of the action. That was the real purpose of it. Uh, The other, of course, is that they had no say in where the licences were allocated, the areas that were designated. And some of those areas that of mine might have been designated would be their, what they call their mahingakai, the places where they get uh, certain species of, of food or shellfish. Mm. Uh, and I think that's what the issue is. And and what it does, it highlights uh, a lack of participation in, in the decision-making process.
1: So if the government had allowed it to go any claims, to go to the Maori Land Court, and the Moray Land Court would determine the status of foreshore and seabed on particular areas if Moray could establish customary land, you know, below high water mark, which is part of the part of the issue. Um, that would have been by far the better option. You would have been satisfied with that.
2: I'm I'm not sure what what their um, you know their long term objectives are, um, Kim. Uh, more than likely, the you know the primary objective is one of the expression of tino rangatiratanga because, you know, the the treaty um, is a balanced equation between kawana tanga, uh, the right of the crown to do certain things, Mm. uh, and tino rangatiratanga, the right of the Māori iwi to do certain things. Now, the the right of the crown uh, has progressively been established uh, from simple things uh, like setting up Uh, a a legal system, uh, a law enforcement, a militia, and it just grows on and on to the devolution of power to local bodies. All these things are subsumed under one little word, uh, Kawanatanga. Now, those things were developed progressively as the colony grew and asserted more dominion over things that Māori had and did, and the Tino-Rangatiratanga side remained undeveloped uh, there was a, a total asymmetry in that relationship, and this is now that we have a lot of uh, educated, qualified people, uh, then they're saying, "Hey, me too. We want to be part of this, and but on our terms. Uh, let's get together."
1: It's interesting that you say it as a balanced equation, and I guess that that's in in an optimistic sense. It's also possible to say that Article One and Article Two are incompatible, isn't it?
2: You can't have. Well, the reason for that incompatibility, Kim, is that at that time, Maori people owned and dominated the country. They were well-armed. They outnumbered Pākehā by 60 to 1. And uh, they came here on Maori terms. And that's why they got a good deal out of the most powerful empire in the world. And, uh, you know, the British didn't want to come in here with, with, with gunships. Um, they didn't particularly want to have New Zealand. They just didn't want other people to have it. And so uh, they did this deal, and, and the Maori uh, chiefs, uh, under the guidance of some of their missionary mentors, wrung a good deal out of the Crown. And, of course, uh, the Crown is now being made to pay for that deal.
1: How do you think Maori should... Respond to the foreshore and seabed legislation.
2: Well, uh, already um, we've heard talk of the activists mm. uh, organising protest activity.
1: Does that worry And that's, you?
2: And that's why the struggle uh, goes on without end. Well, I'm, I think, I think uh, Helen Clark uh, and the Attorney General made a mistake. They were spooked. Uh, they were spooked by the barbies and beaches for all. Uh, campaign, uh, the National and, Party campaign. Yeah, yeah. Th- there was a a protest there in Nelson, uh, and and people were, had placards uh, marching up and down, and saying whites have rights too. And I think when you use terminology like that, we're flirting with the underbelly of the psyche of New Zealand. Uh, you know that has that racist element in it. And uh, and and I'm I'm really sorry to see this once great National Party flirting with that.
1: So when Don Brash gave his Orewa speech, it really was a watershed, was it? Because oh. Bill English had said much the same before. It. Well,
2: well, Kim, let me let you in on a secret. Um, Bill English um, spoke to me at the, uh, at the um, Knowledge Wave conference last year. He wanted to talk to me, uh, and uh, I said, OK, next time you're in town, uh, we'll meet, and we will make you some scones and we'll have a nice cup of tea. And Bill came round, and I found Bill to be a very intelligent a very knowledgeable person he knows the treaty discourse and so i said to him bill you you, you don't need any advice from me you've got georgina there uh, you've got Willard gardner and Hekia Prata in your party we think alike on the way our nation should be and uh, we parted good friends and a few days later he came out with his one law for all um, statement and i was horrified as i thought this isn't the person that i spoke to Uh, So quite clearly there are people who are pushing that racist button behind him, but he didn't uh, do it with any high degree of enthusiasm, and so he got rolled, and Don Brash got put in, and of course Brash, being a money man, is myopic. He's not really aware of the social realities of New Zealand culture, and that speech was just a collection of mantras that you hear on talkback radio and in the tabloid newspapers.
1: Interestingly enough, well, you say interestingly enough, the response by most commentators and journalists to the Oriwa speech was negative.
2: Oh, that's right, they applaud Well, I
1: find that quite interesting too, because the media is continually damned by you and others for their negative attitude towards Maori. So why wouldn't they applaud the Oriwa speech if they were that down on the Maori?
2: because the 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 media is up on the play of the transformations that are that are coming about in New Zealand society as a consequence of the treaty discourse, as a consequence of the the treaty settlements, and uh, also as a consequence of what's happening in the tertiary education sector, where uh, the treaty is driving some of the transformations there to create a level playing field to increase Maori participation. Uh, in education uh, and uh, uh, graduation at the tertiary level.
1: Well, here's the thing then, if you found it surprising that uh, the negative reaction to Brash's speech came from journalists and editorial writers and political commentators on radio and television newspapers. And yet, it sent him right up in the polls. I called him Dr. Bush before in a slip of time. <laughs> but it's the same thing in yep. America, right? All yep. those kind of liberal journos yep. thought, oh, we want John Kerry, George Bush can't possibly win again. And he won again because something's out of sync. There's a whole lot of people out there who felt they actually knew and applauded what Don Brash was talking about.
2: Yeah, as I said, that speech was simply a collection of shibboleths that are out there in the common arena and it's that's the, the fodder of the tabloid newspapers and the talkback radio
1: there's a lot uh, of votes in that sure this is, why. This yeah, is but, why yeah but that's
2: the reason why there was that uh a strong reaction from the editorial writers and
1: the journalists uh and but apart from the intelligentsia, that doesn't matter. And in the end, this is exactly why the Labour government had to get down and do some legislating.
2: Yeah, that's why there was that powerful reaction uh, over foreshore and seabed. It's putting those uh, those uppity Maoris back in their place.
1: So, do the are the Maori MPs that have supported the legislation? Are they sellouts?
2: Well, that's the way they've been constructed. I mean, we haven't seen such a. Gross insult uh, to Māori leaders, as we saw uh, on the, when, the, when the hikoi arrived on the forecourt of Parliament and, and Tame Iti uh, spat on the marae and evacuated the contents of his nostrils in front of Dover Samuels and Parakura Horomia. And you could see from the, from the body language of John Tamehere that really hurt. Uh, but the interesting part about it, I understand uh, Tame has been sent to Coventry also uh, for his behaviour. By whom? Oh, by his own people.
1: Because it was considered to be unacceptable.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, over the top.
1: Uh. It's interesting that that his own people don't don't take part in the kind of chatter about that. (laughs) They keep that private there. Oh, yes, yes,
2: yes. Ah. Um, So so there is a point where marae theatre is acceptable and there is a point where it's not. Um, uh, Spitting on the marae like he did at at Waitangi, that was fine, but another person spitting on the Governor-General, that was totally unacceptable. And in traditional times, that would have been cause for war. And that shows you how alienated some of those urban people are from the real meaning of their culture.
1: Do you think the Maori MPs that are supporting the legislation are sellouts?
2: <laughs> I would prefer not to comment on that because because I do not belong to any political party, and I try to go straight down the middle of uh, the dynamics of our. Of our nation
1: well you know i think it was nanaya mahuta the other day who said it's better to take part in the process than than uh, you know ostracize well, yourself uh, i it.
2: take part in the process at the intellectual level and through my writings kim and that affects a lot of people and
1: she's taking part in the process by not walking
2: Yeah, yep yeah. but i've already seen that that she's been criticized by her people and those uh, Māori MPs may well pay at the next election.
1: It's the terrible, terrible burden that Māori MPs carry, don't oh, you think?
2: Absolutely. And as I said, it's the flaw in democracy, that in the end, the will of the majority um, has its way.
1: What about Georgina Tehuehue, who's in an invidious
2: situation? Oh, she I, I, ge- I, uh, the, I mean, that was the biggest insult to the Maori people, the sacking of Georgina Tehuehue. Well, she did not agree. Speech.
1: She was spokesperson of Maori Affairs. She did not agree with the National Party policy as enunciated by Don Brash. What else could he do?
2: Well, he should have spoken to some Maori leaders. And they I mean, have... you have... The Tehuehue family... Along with Dame Te Aute Kahu, are the nearest things we have in this country to royalty, and that was a grave insult that went right throughout the rest of the Maori world, not just to those tribes.
1: You see, that's a that's a cultural issue and an yeah. important cultural issue to you, but no, it
2: should be a, an important cultural be. issue to all New Zealanders. Should Kim, be, that, but that a person there's... of. Of manner of good standing is treated like that.
1: But there's the divide because the general rule in the How world is this is politics you know you can't become confused this is politics this is the hardball what are you gonna do get national in that's the Labour Party attitude what are you gonna do you want national to be the government so they can push and well,
2: push Well, one of the curious things about national in government, Kim, is often they've given Mali a better deal. That's one of the contradictions of our political system.
1: Well, yeah, except that that was presumably before Dr. Brash and his Uriwa speech or before even yeah, Dr. But, Brash uh, came part. But
2: Dr. Brash is, is politically naive in many ways. Doesn't matter. He, he would, if, if he were to go in, the social dynamics of the treaty discourse... The browning of the public service, the integration of Maori customary procedures uh, throughout uh, the practices of the nation, uh, he would have to go along with it. As other, as have Uh, previous Prime Ministers such as Jim Bolger.
1: Well, except that that was when the consensus was in force and now it's said the consensus has been blown out of the water. I mean, even the Labour... No, no,
2: no, no. I I think you will find uh, there's a a certain restoration of the status quo. The uh, Labour Party has clawed its position back in the polls. (coughs)
1: Um, But only... (coughs) It's only clawed its position back in the polls by... Appointing Trevor Mallard, for example, to review all the bits of money that are going to Maori by appearing to take a hard line on the foreshore and seabed, although that hasn't appeared to please anybody in the end. You you used to support... You went through a stage of supporting New Zealand first, and Mm. I suspect it was was during the anti-immigration position that they were uh, espousing. No, I, I don't... A, a support any uh, party um, publicly.
2: Uh, that was my own personal position staked out on uh, opposing immigration because of the footprint that we are creating on the landscape.
1: Right. So it wasn't anything to do with Winston no, No, it Patriots. wasn't
2: anything to do with any party. Uh, I've been anti-immigration way back since the 1970s. Uh, because uh, of the stress you place on your environment and and the stress you place on our social services.
1: Mm. I mean, that's another issue, isn't it?
2: Oh, it's a huge issue.
1: And how do you think that it's going to work out over the next ten years? I'm anticipating that you will do another update. (laughs) As the Struggle Without End continues. Um... You know, yeah, well, you say you're optimistic, but then you simultaneously say well, the foreshore and seabed is huge setback.
2: Well, I'm one of those uh, those intellectuals who talk about post-colonialism, and I would date that. But from, don't you
1: quote somebody as saying, "Huh, post-colonialism? Have they left then?"
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, the The watershed was the. Granting of retrospective power to the Waitangi Tribunal back to 1840 to examine our colonial past. That's the watershed, and uh, a lot of people are doing the right thing by that, setting setting things right. And consequently, we academics use that term post-colonial. And when uh, um, the Hawaiian academic Honani Trask was here, and she heard that term for the first time, she said... Had they left?
1: Yes.
2: And, uh, well, it would seem that the Crown's reaction to the Maori claim to assert customary right to the foreshore and seabed, it would seem not. Mm. And so there's got to be an attitudinal change there in Pākehā towards their Maori partner.
1: Mm.
2: That's that's the, the, the final uh, bit in the jigsaw puzzle.
1: Except that don't you think a lot of Pākehā don't understand that, an attitudinal change. They think, well, so much has changed in the last 10, 20 years, and it's still not enough.
2: (laughs) Well, the the changes have been much worse for Māori, Kim. Uh, We understand that. They've been waiting 130, 140 years uh, for their injustices to be put right and Parkers have only had to put up with it for the last 10 or 15 years, and they're very impatient people. They're saying, ouch already, Uh, stop it.
1: Do you and Deirdre argue about this stuff? Not at all. You're singing from exactly the same page. Exactly. That must be a very interesting experience for her, being married to you. She has a wonderful life. <laughs> she, no, I'm sure she does. But you have, you know, a very interesting family. You've got Maori, you've got Pākehā, you've got Tai, you've got. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, you're a you're a an uh, an encapsulation of New Zealand society, if you like.
2: Yeah, uh, and uh, if if you've got to the epilogue where I write about uh, Maori television yeah. uh, coming on air, uh, she went round to our daughter's place and our grandson Sam, who's uh, a 10-year-old who's straight middle New Zealand, lives in Epsom. His parent, Both his parents are professional people. And she turned on the Māori television Say they're not allowed to look at television, right? And, and the boy was just a gog at Māori uh, kids at Raglan after school going surfing, uh, Māori kids doing break Māori kids doing science. And he said to his nana, gee, nana, aren't Māori clever? Now, that's what Māori television is about. It's affirming Māori identity. Here's a kid who is more Pākehā in his cultural behaviour than he is Māori, saying it's now cool to be Māori. Whereas once upon a time, such children would have done all in their power to deny their identity as Māori.
1: It's always very nice to talk to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Dr. Ranganui Walker whose book, Struggle Without End, ka fafai tonu it's an update of his 1990 book. It's published by Penguin.